This is Courage Cast. More power, less fear, so you can make a difference. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Courage Cast. I'm your host, Eric Nordoff. Today is going to be fun because I'm getting to talk to... Gosh, I love what I get to do. I'm going to talk to a man who knows a lot more about this topic than I do. It's a topic I've been dabbling in probably for the last six months or so, really getting taking it seriously. I've heard for so long now, probably for two to three years, hey, man, you should get into... You should buy Bitcoin or you should buy Ethereum or you should buy Dogecoin or whatever other coin there is. And I'm like, well, listen, I I have no clue. Why should I buy something that I don't even understand? And I'm just starting to understand the blockchain. I'm listening to people and what they're saying, and I'm really finding it to be very interesting. But I just don't know how to reconcile it all. So when I saw the opportunity to bring our guest today on, Jimmy Song, he's going to be talking about a book he's written, but we're we're going to just be talking about this uh, cryptocurrency and where we're at now. How did we get here? And then where are we going with it in this in this Mm -hmm. crypto world? Because it, I think we naturally are scared of things we don't understand, and I want to kind of take some of the fear away out of this topic and and bring God back into the conversation as well, because this is not a surprise to him. So Jimmy Song, welcome to the Courage Cast. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about Bitcoin and Christianity and a lot of other things. <laughs> so tell me about your kind of your introduction to cryptocurrency and how you why are you passionate about the subject? Yeah, so I got into Bitcoin back in 2011 when I read an article on a tech news website called Slashdot. Um, and it was February of 2011, and I saw a story that I didn't have any idea what it was about. Um, usually I know something about each story, but this one was a complete mystery. The title was Bitcoin Has Reached Dollar Parity. And I was like, what? How can, what is this thing that reaches dollar parity? Like, what, what does that even mean? And uh, and I looked into it and I found out that it's a currency. And uh, one of the first things I found out was that it had a 21 million limit, which I think as as with all human instincts, it made me want to get some more of it, get some of it just because it was something scarce. I found out later more of the economic aspects. And I think that's really why I'm passionate about it now. Um, if you look in my LinkedIn profile, it says I'm, I'm trying to bring sound money to the world and that's become more or less my purpose in promoting all of this stuff because I believe that bad money corrupts character significantly. And um, and we can talk a little bit more about this, but the current monetary system is a complete cesspool of that. Mm. I joke with people that I preach Bitcoin to Christians and Christ to Bitcoiners, and, and there are a lot of parallels. It's hard to understand what Bitcoin is for until you understand what it is fixing. It's hard to understand why Christ came to die unless you understand what the problem of sin is, right? Oh, yeah. So I'd like to sort of like outline for you what the current problem is. 
We have a monetary supply. We have a money system that expands continually. And what that means is we have something called fiat central bank backed money. And that means that every time, for example, the government you know, has a budget of six trillion, they only have tax revenues of four trillion, they have a two billion dollar or two trillion dollar budget gap. What mm-hmm. happened? Uh, you know, where do they get it? Well, they sell some to the public in the form of treasuries. But whatever they don't sell, and not that many people are buying treasuries right now, whatever they don't sell gets bought up by the lender of last resort. And this is the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. So $2 trillion essentially comes into existence in order to fund the government coffers. Now you might think, well, what's the big deal, right? Like it's uh, you know, like helping out our government and it's paying for things that we we should pay for and so on. Well, the problem is every time you're printing new money, it's diluting everybody else that's holding that money. So in a sense, it's a form of theft and it is systemized institutional theft. And you might think, well, okay, all right, that that sounds kind of bad, but you know, like what else am I gonna use? And you know, I, I'm not really culpable. Actually, you kind of are because it's not just the Federal Reserve that gets to print money, it's every bank below them. So every member bank of the Federal Reserve has the right to do something called fractional reserve banking. And that's a form of leverage, but essentially it gets to create money out of thin air in a way. And the way they do that is through loans. So if, say, a large company wants to borrow $100 million, that $100 million is often at like 1% or 2% interest rate over a period of 5 to 10 years, something like that. And that money does not come out of somebody's savings. It is created on their behalf. And even at the retail level, when you get a mortgage, you are not getting money that somebody else has saved. You are actually getting it printed for you. And just to give you uh, more intuition around this, think about the normal mortgage right now. Conforming loan is something like $400,000, 30 years, and you get it for around 3%. Think about where that money comes from. Is there somebody on the other side of the trade that is willing to give up $400,000 for 30 years at a ridiculously low rate of return, like 3%. Are there that many people like that? Because mortgages are happening all day long. Absolutely not. That is all money printed on your behalf. The bank doesn't have that money. It creates it for your benefit. So if you think about the fiat monetary system, it is really a system that encourages theft. And it is theft of everybody that holds the dollar. And you might think, okay, well... Aren't, aren't I taking it from like just really rich people or something like that? Nope. Most of the money that you're taking is from other people around the world. Most rich people actually don't own much cash. They, the thing on the street that they say is cash is trash, right? Like you only go into cash or treasuries when you absolutely need to. If your money's not working for you, then you're losing money. Everyone knows this. And this is why the stock market and real estate market have gone crazy over the last year and a half. So who are you stealing from? Well, other foreign central banks hold a reserve of dollars because of something from 1944 called Bretton Woods. So all these central banks use the dollar as their reserve currency. But more than that, people in other countries use the dollar as a way to hedge against their own currency depreciating. Mm -hmm. And this is happening all over the world and in places that you would never think. So Nigeria, the US dollar reigns supreme. Mm. North Korea, the most desired currency in the North Korean black markets is the US dollar. So who's actually being stolen from? It's people like that. It's the people in Nigeria that are trying to 
save for a rainy day. They often give $100 bills at weddings as a way to set a couple up for success and so stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Those are the people being stolen from every time a new loan is made ex nihilo or out of nothing. And that is what this, this whole system is. The whole fiat monetary system is. And it's essentially a cesspool of theft and horribly unjust. And it, it's stealing from some of the poorest and most vulnerable people in the world. Wow. So that for me is the problem, right? Well, hopefully I, you I, get what it is. I get the problem. I mean, I get that it, it's kind of, I'm a little bit outraged. I really mm-hmm. was, we're all just completely, this is not a conscious thing for us, right? Because mm-hmm. we're, mm-hmm. we're just participating Christians, mm-hmm. non-Christians, we're all just participating in this system and we have this blind faith or this blind, that we're blind to the to what's really happening, mm-hmm. to the economics of it all. Yeah, and they purposefully don't tell you much about how it works. You actually have to, a lot of members of Congress don't even know how the Federal Reserve Of course works, not. Right? It, right. It, it, it's something that we're horribly ignorant of in large part because they made the system that way. Uh, Henry Ford once said that if the people in this country knew how the monetary system worked, there would be riots tomorrow, right? Wow. He knew back then that this was a horribly unjust system. And yet the U.S. has been sort of like taking resources from all over the third world through this monetary imperialism essentially established post-World War II. We tend to think the U.S. was only doing good things post-World War II that there We're particularly generous with Europe, with the Marshall Plan and so on. It's not the case. It was a form of monetary imperialism by establishing essentially the dollar standard globally. But as a result of that, every time money is being printed, it is being stolen from by other people. Now, I I don't think you need to do heavy exegesis to know that stealing is wrong. Yeah, It it doesn't matter what the the amount. Yeah, it might be a very tiny amount when you're taking out your $400,000 mortgage, Mm -hmm. but it's still stealing. And it's stealing from some of the poorest and most vulnerable people in the world. And just to give you an example, in the black markets in North Korea, we're getting reports right now that prices have doubled. And it's because of the monetary expansion. All of that dilution is basically making it harder for people in North Korea to eat. And the regime's not helping them. They have to go buy it on the black market. And the food there is literally double the price of what it was a year ago because of all the monetary expansion. Mm. So if you think about it, the problem is that we are all sinning as a result of the current monetary system. And this is where, you know, we're, I'm not the first person to say it. There have been a lot of other Austrian economists and so on and faithful Christians that have pointed out this problem. So Two books that I can recommend that were written before Bitcoin that talked about this were The Ethics of Money Production by Guido von Halsman and Honest Money by Gary North. They both pointed out this problem very clearly. The problem is their only solution back then was to go back to a gold standard. And this is the part in the book where as I'm reading it, I'm rolling my eyes because I very clearly realized this isn't going to happen. You're not going to get everybody back on the gold standard. You have to get a political action committee together. You have to bribe members of Congress and all this other stuff. It's just not happening. Right. But then Bitcoin comes along and Bitcoin is this decentralized, uncensorable. It doesn't even have a physical location. So it makes it extremely difficult to seize. And you can be your own bank. You can can, uh, basically get banking services without a bank. Mm. And that 
is the magic behind Bitcoin. It really is something that is way better than the current monetary system and even better than something that worked pretty well, like gold. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I'm passionate about. And, and you asked the question earlier about quote unquote cryptocurrency. And this is something that I, I want to make clear to your listeners. Um, Cryptocurrency is something sort of like that the media made up because we sort of share in the same digital nature and so on. But Bitcoin and altcoins could not be more different Mm -hmm. because Bitcoin is decentralized. It doesn't have a center, right? It doesn't have a single point of failure, whereas all of these altcoins do. Um, All the other coins do. All the other coins do. And I I can tell you specific events that have happened that prove this. Wow. And so for me, there's Bitcoin and there's everything else. And everything else, all the other altcoins are basically people trying to be their own central bank, mm-hmm. whereas Bitcoin is actually sound money. And sound money actually helps civilization because you can go back to people being more honest with each other and not stealing from each other. Whereas with altcoins and so on, it's a bunch of people printing their own money and trying to wow. get marketing. So that would be... Yeah, how I would characterize. Okay. Okay. This is really, really helpful. I really didn't understand that Bitcoin was as de- was decentralized, number one. Mm. But can you just tell me as best you can, how does Bitcoin work? Like, why <laughs> would somebody create it? Or somebody uh-huh. had to... I think there was... I, I read, I can't remember who created We, we could talk about Satoshi Nakamoto, yeah. Satoshi, yeah, I, I, I couldn't remember his name. Uh-huh. But yeah, tell me about that. And was he just a selfless man? Or is like, tell me about the history of Bitcoin and and how it works. So the, the history of Bitcoin really starts in something like 1992. Um, there was a bunch of um, sort of computer savvy people called the cypherpunks. And they were all about liberty. They realized sort of like where the digital stuff was going and that we were going to be endlessly surveilled, that the government would have way too much control and so on. So they, there was a, essentially a group of people around the world that were on this mail, cypherpunk's mailing list. And in fact, you can go look up the cypherpunk manifesto and uh, you know of these people talking about how they want individual sovereignty and so on. Mm-hmm. So that's when it started. And one of the early uh, sort of things that they recognized was they needed some sort of digital currency. And there were many attempts by cypherpunks over the years to try to make it work. And some of the early cypherpunks, like their names you might recognize, Julian Assange and, uh, you know, yeah, I I can't remember some of the other ones, but there were original cypherpunks. They wanted personal sovereignty. They wanted to limit the, you know, the control of the state and so on. That was where it kind of began. And the idea of a digital currency was sort of introduced and a lot of people tried to implement it. And there were a lot of, shall we say, limited successes, really kind of failures uh, along that. There was a project called eGold that kind of took off a little bit. Uh, but then they arrested a lot of the people because they can just go to the central place where the e-gold was being issued and arrest everybody. And that's exactly what happened. Um, I think some of those people are still in jail to this day for money laundering. But at a certain point after these like stops and starts, October 31st, 2008, an anonymous cypherpunks mailing list member named Satoshi Nakamoto, we don't really think that's the actual name, that's probably a pseudonym, Drop the white paper, a technical description of Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer cash, uh, digital cash. 
And the idea behind that white paper was, okay, we can do it in a decentralized way because every every other attempt at uh, sort of digital currency that the cypherpunks had done was centralized. There was a single point of failure. There was a server that kept all the records or something like that. And he was like, you know, you could do it in a decentralized way. And really what decentralized means there's is there's no single point of failure. So in the physical world, you would say like gold is decentralized because unless all the gold is in one place, it, you have Got possession it. of it. There's no permission required to go dig it up. If I own some land, I can try digging for gold, though I'm likely not going to be successful and so on. And basically, uh, Satoshi figured out the digital equivalent of that. And it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm told that to dig up... Um, one ounce of gold, you have to process something like 40 tons of dirt and rock. That's the normal ratio. And you do something equivalent in a digital process called Bitcoin mining. And it's very similar. You have to process lots and lots of numbers instead of the digital equivalent of dirt and rock in order to find your uh, like sort of single ounce, uh, which, which in Bitcoin is called proof of work. But basically, it's a distributed ledger. It's a ledger just like it is at your bank. So when you deposit money at your bank, uh, they credit you 50 bucks. They don't put, a, you know, they don't have a separate holding place for your money and then like take it from there. They just put it in the vault and credit you 50 bucks or whatever. And then when you write a check for $20, they debit your account and credit the other person's account and so on. But that's basically what a ledger is. Bitcoin has that same ledger. The trick is that everyone has the same copy of that ledger. And anyone that's running the software can validate it at any time. And so as a result, what you get is not a single repository of all of the transactions that have happened, but many repositories of the same ledger that everyone checks constantly. So you get this very interesting property of decentralization because you could take all of the nodes down except for one, and it would still keep going because the ledger still exists. And then you you would be able to keep going with transactions and so on. But I mean, that's a very quick, rough overview of how Bitcoin works. Obviously, it's a lot more complicated. And I teach courses on this stuff and sure. talk about it on various places. Uh, but that's a very rough overview how, of how Bitcoin actually works. Yeah. And we should tell our listeners, programmingblockchain.com is your website. Yeah. 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 Programming blockchain. You've been doing this since August of 2017. And mm -hmm. tell me about that. What got you passionate about teaching and uh, educating people about it? Yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, I've been a programmer all my life, right? Like I got my first computer when I was nine years old. And, you know, right out of college, I, I went to a startup and started coding for them and so on. Uh, so I, I've been a coder for quite a while. And when, you know, I was uh, trying to learn Bitcoin. This was in 2013 when I was uh, starting to contribute to some of these open source projects. I, I was quite frustrated because uh, there wasn't very good documentation and I had a tough time kind of learning it. Um, I, I managed to, but it, it was a long slog because documentation was all over the place and stuff. And then when I started going and working for Bitcoin companies, this seemed to be the bottleneck with a lot of developers as well. You know, it turned out that they didn't know what to do either or how to learn it. And they had trouble. So I took on the role of teaching them a lot of this stuff because I had learned it. And it turns out that I kind of had a talent for it. And I did this for a few companies where I would just sit down with uh, people for a couple of days and teach them all this stuff. And I realized like this is a very valuable service to the Bitcoin ecosystem. And so I, I started charging money for it. And like any entrepreneur, I found out that 
very quickly that there was a demand. And I, I started doing these seminars to teach developers about Bitcoin. So, you know, instead of trying to learn for six months what Bitcoin is and how to program it, you know, you can come to my class and learn in a couple of days. And, you know, I make money, they get better knowledge, they have better job prospects and so on. But really, it was a capitalist endeavor and it still kind of is. And it, it's been very good. Do they pay you in Bitcoin? To go through, uh, yeah, that's some. That's one of the things I require. If they want to pay me in dirty fiat money, then I I charge them extra. But yeah. <laughs> oh man, I love this. So my the re- another reason, selfishly, I'm interested in this mm-hmm. is my son is starting his senior year in programming, <clears throat> software engineering, and he's got great prospects. He loves coding. He's really into it, mm-hmm. and uh, but I just have no idea what he does now. I mean, we can't. <laughs> Neither do my parents, to be frank. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to the book, Thank God for Mm -hmm. Bitcoin. Uh, Mm -hmm. The subtitle is The Creation, Corruption, and Redemption of Money. I'm assuming Mm -hmm. you go into the details of Mm -hmm. the stuff that you talked about in much more detail with the corruption of the fiat system and Mm -hmm. and all of that. Tell me how you bring... I love the fact that you're... It's decentralized. So, But in the sense, like... (laughs) <laughs> there's the redemption of money. So mm-hmm. money is in essence redeemed when you pay and you interact with people using mm-hmm. Bitcoin. So it, it's neutral. It's no longer the love of money is the root of all evil. It's Well, it's, at, at least no it doesn't allow uh, you know, rampant theft, basically. That, that's, that's the, the argument that we make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, no uh, but yeah, we possible. we talk about a lot of that in the book. A lot of the you know sort of consequences of fiat money that a lot of people don't really connect the dots on. So, for example, politics tends to become hyper politicized, like uh, in, whenever you have fiat money, largely because of the existence of the money printer. When you have a money printer and they're printing on the on behalf of the government. Well, what happens? Well, control over how you spend it becomes an enormous thing because you can essentially steal from everybody else to fund whatever it is that you want. And governments have been doing that for a very long time now, you know, since or at least the last hundred years. And it becomes hyper politicized just because there's way more at stake. When you can spend other people's money that they don't consent to or have no transparency on or whatever, and that's essentially what inflation is. It's a tax without transparency, consent, or even knowledge, right? Like that's what happens is that people, everything becomes hyper politicized. And we're we're seeing sort of like the fruits of that right now. Uh, but not only that, it corrupts our character because the entire fiat monetary system is based on debt. And and debt, uh, as scripture tells us, is is very corrupting. It's um, debtor is servant to the Your lender slave, is right, yeah, right. And in a se- in a very real sense, uh, when you owe money, right, when you owe debt, what's happening is that you you are enslaved to that debt, mm-hmm. that you are serving that debt. We even even our language is I have to service that debt, right? Like you you end up serving money. And you are allowed to do all of this because that allows you to bring consumption forward. So instead of the biblical model of sowing and then reaping, right, saving and then getting what what you want later, you have the absolute uh, the exact reverse, which is you get what you want now, and then you have enslavement over the time that you have to pay off that debt. Mm-hmm. And this is true of mortgages, credit cards, pretty much every you know student loans, everything, right? Like it ends up corrupting our sense of 
you know, what's valuable and everything else. And right. instead, we are very used to indulging in whatever we want, not just at the individual level, but at the business and government level. Right, Everyone right. just gets whatever they want now. Right. We're um, just spoiled so little children now. Yeah, yeah, basically. Uh, this is playing out along the entire age curve. It's not just right. for kids anymore. It's yeah. everybody is subject to the same thing. And, because and it affects our worth. It yeah, on yeah. Our, and our, and our sense of who we are and right. you know what we find valuable and so on. And of course, it's also corrupting to churches. And this is something that we point out in the in chapter seven about how like churches are more or less run like fiat businesses. It's uh, you know, it's all about getting you know ROI on the building and making sure that there are enough butts and seats. And it's not preaching the truth necessarily. It, it's about making sure that people want to come back. And it's run more or less as... We're slaves to well, it. I, I, it's, it's a consumerist mentality, right? It becomes right, right. a religious country club instead of a holy place where we worship God. So all these corrupting effects that happen as a result of fiat money. And you know, one of the things that we speculate on is that you know, as we go more towards a Bitcoin standard, and I do think it's inevitable because it is hard. I want money to talk about are, that. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and and there there are sort of uh, very good reasons from an economics perspective, just human motivation and incentive direction that Bitcoin, I think, will eventually end up winning. That once we get on the uh, the Bitcoin standard, that a lot of this stuff goes away, right? Like we we are a lot more cognizant of the truth and the holiness of God. And we change our character. People start having more kids, start thinking about the future, leaving a legacy, all of these things that uh, we in Bitcoin call low time preference behavior. But I think uh, the classical Christian way of putting it would be just being prudent or Mm -hmm. practicing the virtue of prudence. So that I think is ultimately the message of the book is that Bitcoin is sound money. And the argument is for sound money. Yeah. Tell me, how do you see the next... What is the future going to look like? What is the... Mm-hmm. If Bitcoin... And, and can it be corrupted? Mm-hmm. Number one. Well, and number two, what could the future look like? Or realistically, what will the future look like if we implement Bitcoin and make... And will we ever transition? I have so many questions. You know, will we transition from... <laughs> From the fiat system, can we ever uh-huh. get out of it? Are we are we slaves to it? Yeah, very good questions. So I, I think the first question is about Bitcoin being corruptible. Is it is it corruptible or not? Great question. The thing that tends to happen with any human organization is that the humans get corrupted, and this we know from Christianity. It's because humans are sinful. This is why absolute power corrupts absolutely, and so on. When you have a person in charge, that's just naturally what tends to happen. You might have one virtuous person, particularly virtuous person that doesn't corrupt it, but their successor is not guaranteed. And we are all mortal. So you're you're not going to have the same person in charge forever. That has been the downfall of a lot of currencies in the past, including the current one, uh, the fiat monetary system. The founders of the United States tried to make it so that we were on a gold and silver standard after their experience with the continental. But they, it, we still had a central bank and we still got the Federal Reserve and all of that. And this is also why, you know, all coins are inevitably going to be corrupted because they have people at the helm, right? They have people that are in control and they, uh, Vitalik Buterin controls Ethereum. Charles Hodgkinson controls Cardano and the Ripple Corporation controls Ripple and so on, like on and on and on. Every, every single one of these has 
a central person, the point person. And to varying degrees, they have already been expressing their sinfulness and controlling their currency and so on. The difference with Bitcoin is that there is no center. There, It is run by computer code. And it was determined at the beginning. And there is no sort of like arbitrary dictates of a sovereign. It is in order to change Bitcoin, you literally need the consensus of everybody that's on the Bitcoin network. Which and is never going to happen. It's not going to happen. That's exactly. human nature. We're never all going to agree. Exactly. Exactly. So that this is what gives Bitcoin protection is that ultimately it just doesn't have a human in it that can be corrupted. And this is, in a sense... I'm reminded of what God warned the Israelites against in having a king. You know, the the time of the judges, it was, I am your king and things are going to be, you're going to do that. But as soon as you have a king, these are the things that are going to happen, right? Like you read a lot of that and it's just like, okay, he's going to take your sons and put them to war and Mm -hmm. he's going to tax you and take things away from you. This is what happens when you put a person at the center of something. It doesn't work because we're all sinful. But with Bitcoin, you're not putting a person. I like it would be kind of like saying, can you corrupt gold? Only if you centralize it. But you know, the gold bar itself is not really corruptible. It's it's just gold. And people can dilute it and do all sorts of things with it, but that's an action to buy a person. You know, one of the really nice things about Bitcoin is it is impossible to counterfeit. In order to fool someone, you would have to control all of the networks that they're able to connect to and so on. So it ends up being that that you can't just counterfeit Bitcoin. It is impossible. So it makes it very difficult to steal or defraud on. I mean, people still do because they're very lax with their security. But to the degree that you were able, we can definitely sort of prevent a lot of the evil that, that can go on with monetary stuff. So how do we transition from the fiat system to the Bitcoin. It sounds like like I want to be all in on Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. How can that be possible? How do you see that? Yeah, uh, so it's very easy. You just go and buy Bitcoin, right? With cash. Um, and this is something that we point out towards the end of the book. The gold standard people that wrote those books, you know, they were like, oh, we need to all transition to the gold standard. Bitcoin is different in the sense that you can individually transition to the Bitcoin standard. So I can, I certainly put a lot of my wealth and stuff into Bitcoin as a way to not participate in the fiat system. And anyone can. And in fact, a lot of people have. Um, now it doesn't have to be your entire life savings at this moment. But what Bitcoin tends to do, especially over a long period of time is because of its fixed supply, there can never be more than 21 million Bitcoins ever. And that's encoded into the software. So like there's no human that can change that really. There's only 21 million and you have a fixed supply, essentially, and increasing demand. The only release valve has been priced. So, you know, you might start with like 1% of your portfolio being in Bitcoin, but that very quickly becomes 5, 10, 50, 90%. Like it, it happens so quickly. And, you know, I, I didn't start with very much, but it very quickly became a dominant part of my portfolio. Um, and that tends to happen to people. And this is, what good savings technology looks like. And this is something that we don't really have today. Like uh, the only places that you can really save money are stocks and real estate. And look how those are doing, right? Like they're, they're absolutely crazy. They're not accessible to everybody. They're completely like you have to put in hours and hours of research for either one, because if you try picking a stock or picking a particular house to go buy, you know that that's, it's kind of a crapshoot and you want the best one and so on. So it's uh you know Bitcoin is superior to all of those in so many ways. 
So you can individually essentially convert to the Bitcoin standard and many people have. And there are a lot of people that are just using it as a hedge. But as Bitcoin becomes a more dominant part of their portfolio, I really do think that they're essentially going to become, they're going to go on the Bitcoin standard de facto because so much of their portfolio is on Bitcoin. But the other question I think you had was, you know, how are we all going to transition? Well, the thing is, like, Bitcoin is hard money and humans like harder money or money that degrades, that doesn't degrade over money Mm -hmm. that does degrade. So dollars are degrading at an insane rate. So the M2 money supply as of January 2020 was about 14 or 15 and a half trillion. It's currently in the, you know, 20, 20 trillion range. So I mean, it's that's a measure of all the money that exists. That it's uh, all the money that exists has expanded by thirty percent in like the last year. So unless you're keeping up with that, you're essentially losing out. And you can see it at the grocery store. Usually, like prices on consumer goods tend to be the absolute last thing that increase. But we've been seeing it in the last year, right? Like there are shortages absolutely everywhere. You know, no one can hire anybody because they're usually not paying enough compared to the sort of like inflationary forces that are at play. And, you know, stuff like beef, uh, you know, it was like $8.99 a pound at Costco as little as like 24 months ago. It's now $15.99. It's like increased by like 80, 90%. So this is the effect, really just theft in action. And, uh, you know, we we tend to think of stimmy checks and PPP loans as being free. No, it was all paid for. It's always being paid for by somebody. It just happens to be people you know, like in North Korea and Nigeria, instead of, you know, like the majority being from here or something like that, there's a lot of money being stolen by a lot of people. So as a result, I think a lot of people go on the Bitcoin standard because people will always prefer the harder, more sound money. And Bitcoin is uh, the hardest, most sound money that we've ever seen. So as a result, I think people slowly transition. And over the next I, I don't know how long. It, fiat money always lasts longer than you think, but it crashes faster than you think. So Weimar Republic, they had inflation for like five, 10 years before 1923. It just absolutely like everything went crazy in like the span of a few months. So mm-hmm. I expect something similar to happen to uh, dollars and other fiat currency, but the dollar is probably going to be the last one to hyperinflate. I expect it to happen to a lot of other currencies first, just because the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. So uh, we'll probably, we're kind of seeing it right now with the Turkish lira, the Nigerian naira, and the Lebanese, um, I can't remember their currency, but they're like all these countries are experiencing pretty high inflation at the moment. And it'll like sort of spread to wealthier and wealthier countries. And at some point it'll, it'll come to the US dollar. And then I kind of feel like, Noah, you need to get on the arc guys. Like, but I, who knows who's going to actually come. You know what? You are convincing me that I have to take Bitcoin seriously. I really do because it's not looking not looking good. Of course, my hope does not come from money, but there is a lot of wisdom in understanding that the flood is going to come. Mm. The flood is going to come at some point, and I better get on get on board with my wife. You know, my partner. So, should I sell my house for Bitcoin? It's a great question. Well, so, and this is something that I came, uh, the conclusion I came to while writing the book is that like mortgages are actually stealing money from some of the poorest people. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, essentially every time people buy a house, they're getting like 5x leverage on, on their money, right? Like 
you're paying with 20% down, but you're getting 5x leverage. And that pretty much all forms of leverage in the economy are money printing. So, you know, like when Goldman Sachs does like 100x leverage on some, you know, foreign currency pair or something like that, that's essentially what's happening. There's money being printed out of thin air. And that, of course, is ultimately hurting some of the poorest and weakest people in the world. So I've, I've actually come out on the side of mortgages. Arson, <laughs> like they're stealing, right? Like, uh, I mean, like at least the ex nihilo mortgages, which is the vast, vast majority of uh, mortgages that exist. And right. I speak as a person that has a mortgage. So I have to do something about that. And this is something that I think every Christian really needs to ask deep questions on because it's such a part of like the financial system that we live in and something that we depend deeply on. But that doesn't mean it's right. And that right. doesn't mean that it pleases God. So yeah, that's something that I'm I'm having to figure out a solution to. I, I really do want to pay off my mortgage fairly soon. Dealing with questions like that, it's not easy. And uh, wow. taking it seriously and really following the word of God. And like when I read like what's happening in first and second Samuel, first and second Kings and so on, and they're like, yeah, what? You know, we we tend to think from our perspective. What the heck were they thinking? Putting an Asherah pole in the uh, in the temple of God, or worshiping Baals, uh, and thinking that it's okay? I think we're kind of doing the same thing. We're worshiping money, whether we know it or not. We're serving money, right? Like um, we're literally servicing debt. And oftentimes, like uh, you know, uh, just one quick story before you know, I finish this rant. <laughs> like, uh, they, they, uh, so I talked to a lot of younger couples, right? Um, and I've known them and I'll just kind of ask them. So, you know, are you guys thinking about having kids or having more kids or something like that? And, uh, usually they'll say, they'll either say yes or no. And then I'll ask why. And they'll say, cause we can't afford it. Now think about what that actually means. So what are you telling me exactly? That if you had enough money, that that money would take care of the kid. Is that what you're telling me? You can't afford it, right? Who is your master? Mm. What are you depending on if that is your answer? Because in a sense, you are admitting that money is your master. You're saying that if I had this money and this money were able to take care of me, this money would be able to take care of the baby. Instead of God, instead of the skills and gifts that he's given you, Instead of the resources that you might have in terms of family and friends, right? Instead of that, you're saying, no, it's actually this money that will take care of me, that will take care of this baby. And this is such a common thing. And we're, you know, this is worshiping Baal in the temple of God, right? Like it's like anyone from another era would recognize it immediately. But because it happens to be ours, we're kind of blind to it. Yeah. And we need to open our eyes and repent. Wow. You're like the Bitcoin preacher. <laughs> I joke that I uh, I preach Bitcoin to Christians and Christ to Bitcoiners. So yeah, yeah, yeah there you, you go. Said that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It's good. Well, I I thank you so much, Jimmy. This has been such a blessing to have you on and an eye opening experience. I want to dive into your world a little bit more, and I want to mm. learn more from you. Do you have a course on how to start investing in Bitcoin and buying Bitcoin and transitioning my my life over to Bitcoin? Because it does sound like it's sound money. 
Yeah. Um, so I, you, you don't need to do too much work on that regard. There's a lot of good companies that are making that process fairly easy. Okay. Um, so I can recommend you three companies that you can probably like sign up for right now. So Swan Bitcoin is a company out of uh, California, but they, they basically make it fairly easy for you to go and invest in Bitcoin. You just hook up your bank account and you buy as much as you want. You can withdraw if you're comfortable taking custody of your own Bitcoins, which is something that uh, I would recommend you learn sooner or later. There's also River Financial. They're a very similar company. And both uh, both of them and this third one have a feature called dollar cost averaging, which makes it a lot easier to sort of like not feel any regret because you're just putting in some small amount on a regular basis instead of trying to time the market, which a lot of people tend to get obsessed with and Mm -hmm. then never end up buying. And then the third one is Cash App. And this is uh, from Square. And Square is uh, Square CEO is Jack Dorsey, and he's a big Bitcoin proponent. Um, and it's a, it's literally an app that you can download on your phone. You could put in a debit card and you can buy Bitcoin right away. So that's one of the fastest ways. I know some people don't like Jack Dorsey because of Twitter and so on. So again, you, you have those other two options as well. But yeah, there's a lot of uh, very... All of them have good tutorials on there, you know, like videos that you can go on the, those websites and sort of learn about Bitcoin, how it works and what the process of buying and investing is like. So that part I'm not as worried about. The bigger part is learning the actual value of it being sound money and more moral money that can take us away from the sin of uh, fiat money, which is essentially enabled theft. Yeah. Okay. So, and the book is called Thank God for Bitcoin, The Creation, Corruption, and Redemption of Money. I'm going to be putting a link to your book, of course. It's available on Audible. Are you reading it? Uh, no, one of my co-authors did. So, you know, the book itself was kind of a miracle. I don't, I don't know if you want to hear this story. Yeah, I want, to hear, I want to hear a miracle story. <laughs> well, so, you know, I started going to Bitcoin conferences in 2017. And one of the first conferences I went to, you know, I, I, I felt some conviction that I should be a lot more open about my Christianity. So mm-hmm. at that conference, I took a chance and somebody asked me, hey, Jimmy, I heard you have six kids. I have six kids, by the way. You and do. you're doing all good, of this good stuff. Good for you, man. And you're doing this. How is it possible that you're doing all of this? And it's like, you know what? I'm going to just answer honestly. I, I have four priorities. And if uh, if an activity doesn't fall into one of these four activities, then I just don't do it. And said it's, and they all start with that. It's my faith. It's my family. It's my finances. And it's my uh, fitness. If it's not in one of those four categories, then I just don't bother doing it. And somebody uh, like that I was talking to kind of picked up on that. And he's like, you know, I'm a man of faith as well. And I think we pretty clearly understood that we're both Christian. He ended up being one of the co-authors of this book. But, you know, through those encounters, I met various Christians throughout the Bitcoin industry. And during the pandemic, you know, we decided to do sort of like a Bitcoin Bible study. So we studied those two books that I mentioned earlier, uh, The Ethics of Money Production and Honest Money and so on. But we weren't really satisfied with the endings of those that said, go go on the the gold standard. standard. And we were like... Oh man, we we really need to write a book to do Bitcoin. I had written a couple of books before, so I was like, let's try it. So the book is really a child of the pandemic and you know, all the time that we had and our need for adult conversation and Bible study and so on. <laughs> but yeah, it, it came out of this kind of horrible pandemic. Even in the midst of that, you know, God was blessing it and 
having his servants work on something that he cares deeply about. Yeah, I can tell it means a lot to you. This is a, a life project, an eternal project <laughs> for you and your co-authors. How many were there? So it was eight of us. And I had this whole process for writing a book sort of like in a, in a very quick time that, that I've developed. Um, I want to do it again for another book that I want to write. But yeah, basically it was eight of us like working, like sort of, you know, we, well, you're, we leveraging, like a bunch of- you're, you're leveraging each other's strengths and each person takes a chapter. Kind of a thing? Yeah, kind of. uh, But we all edited every chapter. I think that thing I was taking advantage of was more kind of like the CrossFit effect. Like if you go to like a CrossFit class and somebody is lifting next to you, no matter how tired you are, you're going to want to go lift it, right? (laughs) Yeah, you are. Um, So, you know, when we have, when you have eight authors and everyone is working, you kind of feel bad if you're not pulling your own weight, you know? So that's, I think, uh, that's something that I discovered like writing my first book, Programming Bitcoin, is it's really hard to motivate yourself. And uh, this was a much more fun project. And I've been surprised at the level of traction that it's had in the Christian community. A lot of people, I'm getting conference invites because they're like, you know, this is a message that we really haven't heard before, but we can feel that we see that this is actually correct. Like, When there, are you going on the Dave Ramsey show? When are you going to have your own, I mean... I, well, Dave Ramsey thinks Bitcoin is a scam. He really doesn't understand it. But it's a shame. But you know, like it's okay. Like not everyone's going to really get what what's going on. I think if you really understood Bitcoin, then he would be a proponent of I'm it. I'm because... sending him this book. He lives down the street from me. Okay, I'm, send, All right. I'm gonna. I'm serious. You know what? I'll sign one for you and send it to your house at, for a day, <laughs> so you can you can like hand it over because. You know, I like he's very dismissive of Bitcoin, and I, I feel like he's doing his listeners a huge disservice. Because I, I, I can get it to Dave. I'm going to okay. get it to him. What okay. a gr- All right. because what a voice he could be for mm-hmm. that. You yeah, know? and like transitioning people to a much better standard than fiat money because a lot of the problems that he talks about with debt and stuff, it's just sort of like endemic to the U.S. central bank backed uh, fiat currency. It's just how that monetary system works. So of course, people are incentivized to take on debt uh, up to their eyeballs and stuff. And all the stuff that he's talking about, which is getting out of debt and using your savings and stuff, is not incentivized by the fiat monetary system. But with Bitcoin, that is so much more incentivized. Everyone saves on on, on a Bitcoin standard because it is increasing. There's such a huge reason to hold it. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, if that becomes your savings vehicle, then, you know, achieving your goals in a Dave Ramsey-esque, uh, you know, financial plan is is a lot easier, a lot better, and a lot more effective. So I would love to see that. But unfortunately, yeah, we, uh, well, maybe you're, maybe, maybe God brought us together so that you can get that book today. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I believe in it. Well, you talked about miracle, how the book came together. Let's just <laughs> believe for a miracle about Getting this to Dave and seeing seeing how. All right, I'll I'll pray for it. Let's put it that way. But I'm serious. I'm, I will. Okay. I will. All right. Okay. Well, gosh, there's so much we could talk about. I'd love to talk uh, sometime. Maybe a part two about tithing and the, mm-hmm. the principles of of giving. I, I just mm-hmm. think there's so much fun we could have with Bitcoin and the adventure mm-hmm. of giving and worshiping God with with mm-hmm. giving and and Bitcoin or like just fair and just balances and things like that. Just. Uh, there, well, we could talk about it next time, but I think it pleases God when we have fair trades, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, just trades. 
But in a fiat economy, what you end up with are people trying to rip each other off all the time, including consumers like me. Um, So, you know, we can talk about that a little bit next time. But I have noticed that I'm much more willing to pay for things. And I realize sort of like the sanctity or sacredness of a market transaction where both people have obligations to each other rather than sort of like do what's best for number one. And that's it, which is sort of the mentality that you get in a fiat economy. Yeah. Oh, so good. Jimmy Song, thank God for Bitcoin. Got to get the book. I'm going to put the links to all the websites you mentioned and and helpful resources you mentioned. Also to programming blockchain for those nerds. If there's a nerd listener, I don't know how many nerd (laughs) people like that, but my son might get, might go check it out for sure. Cause Mm. he's, I've been encouraging him to check out, check out more about blockchain and all of that stuff. So. Hey, thank you so much. It's been uh, truly an honor to have you on, Jimmy. Well, thanks for having me. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. 